Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. Thanks for uh, being here today. I'm Laurel Toft. For those of you who don't know me, I am excited to be talking to you about resurrection today. I'm going to give you my background, which is I am a cardiologist by trade. I actually specialize in what we call resuscitation, but which we might in church call resurrection. Um, And so this topic is very near and dear to my heart, (laughs) Um, both from a professional and a personal perspective. And so I'm really excited to share with you what is a very personal story for me of how my experiences in my work life have helped me to understand the spiritual truths of resurrection. Um, And I can already feel there's like a lot of emotion from me, so that might be happening as well. Also, I do teach. I'm a professor, so can be long-winded. So my husband's going to give me a warning in case I just keep going and going. Um, So I promised that I was going to start with a little trigger warning. I'm going to talk a lot about death and say the word death and talk about physical death today. Um, That could be fresh and that could be uh, difficult to hear. So please be free to be as you are and as you need to be, knowing that that's the context of what I'm going to talk about today. So resurrection, why do we talk about resurrection? It is completely central and crucial to our Christian faith. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. He was crucified. He resurrected three days later. That is the power of the gospel and the power of what we believe. Resurrection is the proof that Jesus is who he says he is, that we can trust what he says, that we know he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And without resurrection, it's all kind of just meaningless. (laughs) And there's nothing that distinguishes Christianity from uh, other ways of living and thinking and believing, because then Jesus was maybe a nice person who lived and taught us some nice things. But the resurrection is really uh, crucial. It's also quite difficult to wrap our minds around and to believe. Like I said, I've actually raised the dead, but not like three days dead. Like, you know, three minutes maybe dead. So this is very difficult to understand, but it's really crucial to our belief as Christians. But I'm not going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus today. <laughs> I know it's like Bible's greatest hits, number one, but I'm actually going to talk about another, maybe top 10 greatest hits, which is the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, and that's because this story, as I read it as an adult, helped me to understand something different about resurrection. So it's crucial as resurrection power is for our overall faith. There's also this crucial component of resurrection in our here and now and in our life. So the resurrection of Jesus gives us that hope that we will live forever in the presence of God, those of us who have said, yes, I believe. But there's also resurrection power that Liz alluded to that is available for us in our lives every day. And that is the power to bring back from the dead the things that have died in us or been killed because of this broken world that we live in. And that's the kind of resurrection that I want to talk about today that I've experienced and how I understand it in the context of physical bringing back the dead. So we're going to actually talk from John 11, which is the story of Lazarus, and we're going to talk in two parts. So the first part is about Mary and Martha's reaction to Jesus pre-Lazarus resurrection. For context, Martha, Lazarus, Mary, these are siblings. We know from the text that they are followers of Jesus and his friends. They've been around his ministry. We don't know exactly 
or I don't know exactly, others might, <laughs> and when they were with him, but we know they've been with him. There's the story that you may have heard where Mary and Martha are around Jesus. It's time to eat. Martha is busy with hosting duties. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening. And Jesus says that Mary has chosen the better thing, which is to be at the feet of Jesus. That's important for how I, as a perfectionist, read this story that we're going to hear today, um, because I read that as Mary's the good one and Martha's the bad one. Um, and so that impacts how I think I read uh, their reactions to Jesus. Their first reaction here for me is really about holding faith and doubt simultaneously in our hands and holding those things in tension. What's, what's your initial reaction when I say that, holding faith and doubt in tension? What comes to mind? This story for me, I think, changed my perspective on faith and doubt, and I'll share how that happened. So let's go to the text and read. We're going to start in John 11. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, naturally, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. First problem. So my husband and I were talking about this and pointed out, for me, death is like the ultimate emergency. <laughs> and Jesus is like, I love him. He's sick. Let's go ahead and wait two more days before we get there. So I have a big problem with that. This is not how I would plan it. This is not how I would react. And if I were Mary, Martha, or if Lazarus could have a response to this, I would be kind of frustrated and not understanding why is Jesus doing things this way? He tells us, we know the end of the story. But if I think about living through it, I have a problem with Jesus waiting to come and answer this very urgent request. So he then said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Just making sure that they know what's going on. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Again, problem number two. I have a big problem with this. Again, we know the end of the story, so we understand that it's probably more faith-building and more powerful to see the dead raised to life than to see the sick healed. However, if I'm living in this moment and I'm hearing Jesus say this, I have a big problem with Jesus' reaction to this. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then moving on to verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. And Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So here's the part where reading this as maybe a kid or a young person in church, I read it just like I just read it to you. As an adult who had experienced emotional and spiritual death in a way, I read this totally differently. So you could read this as Martha saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, but, but even now believe that what you say will happen. 
Or you can read it as, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. But even now, I believe that whatever you ask, God will give to you. <laughs> Ooh, it makes me emotional. Think about it. <laughs> Reading it that way of Martha greeting Jesus with accusation gave me so much permission in my own life to be angry, <laughs> to be upset, to have real reaction to really hard things that had happened. I think, I think that's how she greeted him. I don't know for sure. <laughs> Maybe none of us do. But the idea that this person who knew Jesus, who had seen him do miracles, who loved him, that she could come to him with such raw honesty and say, I'm pissed. I'm so mad. You could have changed this. You could have made it different and you didn't. And I don't understand that. That kind of raw honesty to bring to our God is really powerful. And she still says, okay, still, I know. Whatever you ask of God, he can do. But that permission to be so honest with God, this is where I started to understand holding these faith and doubt intention. And that, I cannot describe for you how freeing it was to have that permission, to be so honest with my God. So Jesus' response to her is really interesting. You know, there's a lot of work about what you should or shouldn't say to people who are grieving. <laughs> and how to approach them. And I'm not sure that Jesus' response is a correct according to any of our current understandings of psychology. <laughs> he says, your brother will rise again. This is incredibly bold, incredibly audacious. There's no comfort in that. I don't know. But he just makes this very, very bold claim. And then her response is like, okay, well, I know that he'll rise again in the last day, in the resurrection. How often have we spiritualized those things, those promises, those audacious claims that God makes for us that are kind of too hard to believe, are kind of too bold to really hope for? And so we could say, yes, ultimately, ultimately he'll rise again. I know that I've done that. Then Jesus goes on and makes some more bold claims. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this? Again, pretty rough to say to this grieving woman, <laughs> to question her theology and question her faith in this moment. Here again, I can read her response two different ways. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. You can read that as her saying, yes, I believe what you've just said. I read it more like this. Yes, I believe that you are the Christ. I read it as her saying, I'm really not sure about this part where you say that my brother is going to live again. I'm not really sure, but I know who you are. And so in this hand, I hold the questions that I don't understand how this works. I really don't get it, but I do know who you are. I do know that I believe who you are and who you say you are. Again, that permission in my own life to hold the tension between I don't get how it all works and this pain, this death that I've experienced really doesn't make sense, but I still know who you are. That permission to hold those two things in tension for me was transformative for my relationship with God. And, and not only in the things where there is death and where there is pain, but in my entire approach to understanding the mystery of, of who God is and how He works, to have this permission to say, not sure about this, but I know who you are, and I know who I believe that you are. That honesty opens up a whole new way of relating to God that is really free and really freeing. 
So next, Mary gets involved. I feel real bad for Martha, I have to say. So Martha like runs out to meet Jesus and she was in the same house with Mary and there were all these people grieving with them. Martha gets up and leaves and nobody cares. But now Mary gets up to leave and everyone goes with her. So again, maybe I'm reading that as not the firstborn, but anyway. Um, (laughs) So uh, Mary gets up, all the Jews who were there in the house consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly, they went out, they followed her, thinking she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell at his feet. Now, remember, for me, the perfectionist slash A plus student, I think, okay, well, now I'm going to see what the right result, the right way to approach Jesus is, because this is Mary, and she's chosen the better way. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary, too, greets him with accusation. Jesus' response now is that when he saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Another response, but wow, (laughs) to know that Jesus is moved by my pain, that I can greet him with accusation and be angry and be frustrated, and that he can still not scold me, not say, you should have just believed more. You should just believe that I'm good. You should just do this, do that, instead for him to be moved by my pain, by my sorrow, by my weeping. That's, that's really beautiful and really powerful. So he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And here's where we see that famous verse, Jesus wept. Jesus knows the end of the story. <laughs> like he knows what's about to happen. He knows that he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. All's gonna be good. But he doesn't deny the reality that they're living in, in this moment of their pain, their sorrow, their suffering. And he weeps with them. Again, that permission to come honestly to him and to have him say, I see your pain, I understand, and I feel your sorrow, and this is sad, and this is wrong, that something, that this death has happened, even though the restoration and the redemption is coming. That is very beautiful. Okay, we're going to pause this part before we get to the actual raising of the dead, and I want to talk for a minute about my personal experiences with resurrection, literally bringing the dead back to life. As I'm talking, maybe think about something in your own life that has died. It could be a relationship. It could be hope. It could be the promise of a future, the future that you had dreamed for yourself. Things in this world die because this world is broken, and it can be from choices that we've made, or it can be from things that have happened to us. But we have all experienced that emotional or spiritual death just from living in this world. These things can seem like they're too far gone, like they're four days dead. (laughs) And this is the part, just like Liz said this morning, I'm not sure how all of this works, but I do know what I've seen of bringing the dead back to life, and I do know what I've experienced. For me, the thing emotionally that had died in my life to share, (laughs) for many, many years, I really hoped and longed to be a wife and to be a mother. And I, I am now, spoiler alert, it's resurrected, <laughs> but I watched for a long time as that hope just died, essentially. And there came to a point where it was just too much and too long to hope for. This didn't happen until I was 36, and I wanted to be married when I was 20. <laughs> so I spent like a long time <laughs> hoping and longing for this thing that I felt I had no ability to change for myself. And it made me very bitter, it made me very angry and frustrated at God. Like, I didn't understand why did He do this for other people and not for me. <laughs> and like, if you would have told me, go dip in the Ohio River when I was living in Kentucky, or go dip in the Truckee seven times, like I would have done anything <laughs> that I thought could demonstrate my faith or accomplish this. But it was real death, and it was real sorrow for me to experience that in my life. 
And so I'm going to share with you what I understand about resurrection, but maybe think about that. I won't ask you to share. It's very personal, but I think we all have those places that either God has resurrected or maybe it's pre-resurrection for you still. I'll share with you a story of when I actually did bring a woman back from the dead. This is my best save ever. It's pretty awesome. So code blue, that's the alarm that goes off in the hospital when someone is pulseless or dead. So code blue goes off. I'm just not even, it's not even my responsibility to respond to this, but I just decided, let me go just check it out and make sure if it's like, if it's my organs problem, then I can go and fix it. I walk in, she's blue. She's blue and she's gone. And I know nothing about her, but we immediately start all of our resuscitation efforts. When a code blue happens, like the entire hospital rushes there and it's intense and it's pretty dramatic and pretty violent, honestly. We pump on their chest, we break their ribs, we shock them with electricity and all the while trying to figure out what's going on. For a brief moment, we got this woman's pulse back and got enough information in that moment for me to make a diagnosis about why she had died, which is pretty rare in the moment to uncover like a reversible cause for death. So I had an idea. I knew what had happened. I was pretty confident that she had a blood clot in her lungs and that that's what had killed her. And so what we needed was to break open that blood clot. So there's a medication that we can give to do that. So I called for it from the pharmacy. 20 minutes later, we still didn't have it. And we're still going. And oftentimes, we limit our resuscitation efforts in the hospital because after a certain number of minutes, the chances of them being neurologically intact from having enough blood flow to the brain is pretty minimal. So we're going on and on. I'm waiting for this medicine from the pharmacy. This, it's kind of chaos. And I can feel in the room around me that people are starting to question, why are we still going? And I'm, I'm a great leader, so I'm very communicative. I'm allowing people to give their input. I'm explaining verbally what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish. But I felt the tension rising. There were actually disparaging comments being made about the woman based on certain characteristics of her appearance and things from the medical chart. And really this overall sense from everyone like, she isn't worth it to keep going, if I'm just being frank. And like, why are we still doing this? But I knew something that nobody else knew. I knew what needed to be done to save this woman. And because I was the one in charge, I'm the authority in the room. So no one can say that she's dead until I say that she's dead. We got the medication, we gave it to her. She went from being dead to being alive. On rocket fuel, like on every medication we have possible to support her life, but alive. And we ended up wheeling her down to the ICU. She got put on full life support machine. She walked out of that hospital two weeks later, 100% intact, like neurologically intact, everything. I did go and ask her, side note, did you have any spiritual experiences in this whole process? (laughs) I've yet to have anyone have any kind of revelation except asking me, were there like little green people around during that time? (laughs) Like definitely not that I saw. I did get to have a great conversation and say, so you died once. What do you think is going to happen the next time that you die? And then, you know, talk about her relationship with God. (laughs) So she, I've never had anyone say anything like that. Just the green children twice. I've had people ask about that. So (laughs) I don't know. That could be like a drug effect from the anesthesia they get afterwards. So there's that piece, but I've never had anyone uh, recall any of any kind of experience like that. So here's what I know from having done that experience and having brought someone back from the dead. Number one is that um, she couldn't bring herself back from the dead. That sounds totally obvious, but if we translate this into our lives and at least to how I've experienced or interpreted things that have been told me by well-meaning people of like, I interpreted it as if you just pray more or read your Bible more or worship better or adjust your own thinking, then somehow you can bring this part of you back to life. And that's like totally 
incorrect and also insulted me because I'm like, do you think of what there's like, if there's anything that I could do to bring this part of me back to life, I would, I would do it 10 times over. But when something really has died, you cannot bring it back to life yourself. That is so freeing for me, again, as a perfectionist who wants to do anything that I can to just know that it's not up to me. This is not within my power to do that. Second thing I know is that um, you're not dead until Jesus says that it's dead. There is one authority in the room when someone is dying who has the authority to say we're done and we're over here, and that authority is God. And, And things can feel beyond hope and dead and gone in our own lives, but there is only one authority who really knows ultimately whether that is really dead or not. The other thing that happens in this situation, the only responsibility that that woman had was to accept our efforts on her behalf. So when you get checked into the hospital, we ask everyone, do you want to be resuscitated or not? It's just a choice to say, yes, I want that, or no, I don't want that. That sounds pretty familiar to our understanding of salvation and our approach to God. We say, yes, I want I want your help. I want to accept that in my life. And that's actually the only responsibility that we have. And then I also know that it can look very hopeless and it can seem like there's really no hope, but sometimes God knows things that we don't and understands things that we don't and there's things we can't see. So just like everyone in that room didn't understand what I did about her physiology and about what was happening for her, there are things that we don't always see and don't always understand that can be at play in this process of being brought back to life. So I'm gonna go back to the text and finish reading what actually happens as Lazarus comes back from the dead. So picking it up in verse 38. So Jesus being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased said, "Uh, Lord, uh, by this time there will be a little stench because he's been dead for four days. (laughs) And Jesus said, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Okay, I read this as Will Ferrell being very sarcastic. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of these people standing around, I said it so they may believe that you sent me. I think that's funny. Okay. (laughs) And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, with authority, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings. His face was wrapped around him with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus is the one who knows and who knows more than we do. I don't understand why there are certain things that God resurrects in our life, that he restores hope for us, that he brings back from the dead, and why there are some things that seemingly never get brought back to life. I don't understand that part, but I do know that he is the ultimate authority. I do know that he knows things that I don't. And I do know that there are just some things that we cannot accomplish for ourselves. Yes, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're doing our best to live a godly life. But when it comes to really seeing that power of resurrection in our life, there's nothing that you or I can do to accomplish it. That's him and that's him alone. And why he waited four days for Lazarus and why some people he healed before they died and others he didn't, I don't understand all of those mysteries. That's the questions that I don't quite understand that I hold in this hand. 
but I know in my life, I have watched him bring these dead places back to life. I have felt that resurrection power. And I know that there was nothing I could do to accomplish it. I didn't get to choose when or how it looked or who did that or what time frame it was. All I said was, I need you and I want you. And I brought my accusation and my anger and my frustration and my sorrow and my fear and brought all that to Jesus. And he responds with kindness, with empathy for my pain. And he did the impossible in my life, and he raised those areas back to life, restored that hope for me. And I believe that he does that. Again, I don't know how. I don't know why. We don't, we don't get to choose that, but I know who he is, and I know his power. And that's what I wanted to share with you today. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.